Hey everybody, welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We are your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey guys. Hello. In not so new news, we made a video this week on TikTok. We did. I had a news article pop up on my Google News feed about what a black hole sounds like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is scary. It is totally. creepy. It sounds a little bit like a tornado. That's it, what I went to. It does. But to think about that happening in space. Right. Like all those noises. Well, you're not supposed to be able to hear anything in space. Yeah. It it's was really vacuum. spooky. And so I sent that to Sarah and Lindsay. And then Sarah chimes in with, okay, yeah, but have you heard the mummy's voice? <laughs> the mummy's voice. <sighs> it's it's a gym. I don't, know, I don't know what else to say about it. So the real mummy... When you listen to it, we're so excited. We're like, oh my God, it's science, right? Like, this is amazing. How did they find the voice, though? They did, they uncovered a mummy that was preserved very well. Mm-hmm. And they were able to recreate his mouth and voice box with a 3D printer mm-hmm. with a single sound. Which <laughs> is um, fun because he wanted his voice to live on in the afterlife forever. Forever. Yeah. And so and the, it will. the single sound. <laughs> You'll have to look it up. It goes something like, huh. What's <laughs> <laughs> this so good? <laughs> I just do it in conversation now. Like if somebody said something like, you're not so sure about it, you just go, huh. <laughs> and that's what the mummy sounds like. All the time. Mm-hmm. Poor little mummy. It's it's a really unsure mummy. He's... he's- He's suspicious. He's yeah. Suspicious. A little like mm. he's over it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So my favorite thing now is to just be like, (laughs) all the time. So (laughs) I cannot with you two. (laughs) We created a video on TikTok or a sound. We did. So TikTok made a bunch of spoofs of it, and (laughs) they're hilarious. And I showed Mike, and he's like, "You know what you should do." Is you should, it's the, the original news article is like a CBS news of like, this is a 3D rendering of the mummy and it makes this noise and it, you insert whatever clip you think the mummy might have made the noise of. Yeah. Like some, somebody put in a cow noise. Yeah. And then somebody said, good morning, USA. Like American dad. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that you guys created this. I thought you just like posted no. it. I made it at she Mike's it. request. What does it say? Hey, little mama, let me tell you. Hey, little mama, let me whisper in your ear. Yes. Yes. Why don't you sing it? Hey, little mama, let me whisper in your ear. (laughs) Yeah, that one. I don't know the next verse. Tell me all the things that you want to hear. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, but I wasn't sure, so I wasn't. I don't know. So I branched out and I made and edited my own TikTok. We had to do a little bit of Googling. We did a lot of Googling. A lot of TikTok research. Mm -hmm. But we made it happen. Talk search, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we want to know how proud you are. I'm very proud of you. Um, I thought it was just a TikTok that you found and you just posted it. So you thought it was funny. We made it. It's very original. I obviously am not on the talk, so I didn't (laughs) know that people were doing this as a thing. So, Well, I think they were like a year ago. (laughs) It was actually from 2020. Fun fact. (laughs) Okay. Here we are. We're going to swoop in on this trend right now. We are in with the times. (laughs) Two years behind. We did post about corn talk, so there's that. I don't know what that is either. We're trying. It's a little kid that talks about corn, how much he loves it. Uh Uh-huh. It's really cute. It's adorable, actually. Anyway, so there we are. (laughs) We talked about mummies. Ah. (laughs) Ah. What are we talking about tonight? <laughs> Actually, really sad things. It's a, it's a serial killers. We're going to do true crime. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the Hillside Stranglers. Thank yeah. you for putting the S on the end. I it know. really bugs me whenever people say it's the Hillside Strangler. Same. Because there are two. There are two. There are two. And Spoiler we alert. Probably put up all the trigger warnings here. I mean, mm-hmm. I know with true crime you should, but this one does include a lot of kids a lot of stuff about rape, necrophilia. It's rough. Sodomy. It's a rough story. Mm. Torture. So, Woo. Very, all the graphic trigger warnings. We're going to talk about gross stuff here, guys. 
Yep. So there we go. We've said it. So I'm going to give you guys some history. And the first person I'm going to talk about is Kenneth Alessio Bianchi. And he was born May 22nd of 1951. He was born in Rochester, New York. His mother was an alcoholic and a sex worker. She gave him up for adoption two weeks after he was born. He was adopted when he was three months old to Francis Cialino and her husband, Nicholas Bianchi. He struggled in his early life, and his adoptive mother described him as, quote, a compulsive liar who had risen from the cradle dissembling. It's not very nice. Uh, (laughs) Like, I guess I don't get it. He dissembled the cradle? He had risen from the cradle dissembling. He was a troubled child from the beginning is what she's saying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just latched on to the he was a compulsive liar piece Mm -hmm. of it. Got it. Because I didn't understand the rest. I was focused on rising from the cradle. I think it's a metaphor. (laughs) It's a metaphor. (laughs) Shaker in hand, like you Like lying. And he had a screwdriver and he disassembled that crib (laughs) right away. And he lied about who did it. Yeah, that makes sense. She did it. It was Mr. Bear. (laughs) It was the one-armed man. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> it was the one-armed man. It's from a movie. Oh, okay. It wasn't me. It's from the one-armed man. one-armed one-armed man is in the story? It's like, wow, is that a children's, like, oh my God. like a uh, nursery rhyme? I, I don't understand. Mr. Bear. <laughs> what kind of stuffies do you have? God damn it. Now I have to look it up. <laughs> It wasn't uh, me. Sarah it was the one-armed man. <laughs> went dark fast. <laughs> was it Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story 1? What? Buzz was one-armed in Toy Story was, for a while. It he was the one mask. Arm. It was Jim Carrey oh, from okay. The Mask. I haven't seen that movie in forever. I haven't seen that movie ever. <gasps> it's well, a good okay. movie. Okay, now you'll, I've ruined it for you. <laughs> you did. <laughs> the whole plot is right there. <laughs> okay, anyways. Aside from all that, he would <laughs> supposedly, <are> we? <laughs> well, he was disassembling cribs. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Compulsive liar. Compulsive liar. <laughs> okay. Supposedly he would have, quote, trance-like daydreams, uh, which would worry his family and rightfully so. At five years old, he was diagnosed with petite mal seizures. Shortly after, he was also diagnosed with passive aggressive disorder. That's a disorder. It's a disorder. And I've got was, it. <laughs> I have never been diagnosed. You want me to diagnose you? I've been undiagnosed my whole life. I feel like I need treatment. You've just been told. <laughs> I told myself I self-diagnosed. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, since nobody diagnosed me. I've got strong words for my primary care doctor. Get up at your next visit. What is um, the treatment? I don't know. I didn't look into that. I didn't realize that you hadn't heard of it. No. It's a disorder. Apparently. You're disordered. I knew that. Probably way back in the day it was. It is not a disorder anymore, I don't believe. I don't quote don't me. Know. It was. And he was diagnosed with it. So he also, when he was very young... Well, I guess I shouldn't say very young, but like 10 and under, had a lot of trouble sleeping and frequently wet the bed. And the reason why I put that in there is because it all kind of adds up into... It's the triangle. The triangle of... What would you what would you say that? Not serial, the triangle. <laughs> serial color tendency. The serial color It's the triangle. sociopath. Yeah. Well, it Tri- makes sense. Treat triad. All right. Well, Kenneth, he was very smart, but he did not apply himself in school. Kenny. I know. Um, his IQ was 116, everybody. He was part of the smart kids group, the Mensa group. Mensa. Yeah. Oh, it's been a while since we've talked about Mensa. <clears throat> he was known as someone who didn't apply himself and also was quick to lose his temper. In 1957, he accidentally fell off a jungle gym and landed on his face. So there we have part of the triangle. The head trauma. Yeah? I don't think that's part of the triangle. (laughs) (laughs) It's not part of the triangle? That would make a square. I mean, that is a good ingredient to throw into the cake. Okay, it's part of the cake. It's part of the cake. But not everybody who has head trauma kills people. This is true. (laughs) 
No, but I do remember them talking about it several times, but I didn't go to school for this like Lindsay. <laughs> Bedwetting, setting I, fires, and killing animals. I have had trauma, and I have not killed anybody. Good yet. to know. Good to know. But that passive aggressiveness. Okay, well, he didn't my, fill out the triangle. He made his own triangle. disorder. Yes. yes. <laughs> he made his own triangle because I didn't hear anything about setting fires or hurting animals. Okay. So his was head trauma. <laughs> He made his own triangle, okay? Okay. All right. So in 1963. Is that a single line? <laughs> there's there's only, one coming somewhere. There's only two points on this triangle. <laughs> She's getting to it, okay? You made a line. <laughs> it's going to be a triangle. You just got to. Don't poke holes in my story. <laughs> Stick with it. Okay. 1963, his mother sent him to a Catholic school to try to change his ways. Yeah, that'll do it. This did not work. Them nuns. Historically, it works really well. <laughs> he got in trouble for pulling down a six-year-old girl's pants. Yikes. No. Um, he graduated from high school in 1971 and married his high school sweetheart, Brenda Beck, shortly after. Sadly, their marriage only lasted for eight months. And she never really gave an explanation as to why, but I think you can probably put the two pieces together and make a line. Because he's a super creep. Super creep. <laughs> he's super creepy. That's right. <laughs> yes. So Kenneth wanted to become a police officer, and he went to college, but dropped out after just one semester. He applied for a position at the sheriff's department, but was rejected. He had a series of different jobs, but eventually he settled into a position as a security guard at a jewelry store. This worked out great for him because he could just steal jewelry and give them to girlfriends or sex workers. He tried to avoid being caught for stealing, so he went ahead and moved to our favorite place, Laca. Los Angeles, California. Indeed. In 1975. And here is when he moved in with his cousin, Angelo Buono. So a little history on Angelo. Angelo Buono Jerner. I cannot say his name. His name's hard. Buono. Buono. I kept reading it as they say Buono. Bueno because I was thinking Spanish, but he's not. He's Italian. He's Italian. I kept re- reading it as like Buono. <laughs> Angelo. We're going to call him Angelo. on the O. Yeah. Buono. <laughs> Buono. <laughs> now that sounds like an American trying to say an Italian name. Angelo Buono. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, he is Mario, apparently. It's a me. <laughs> Angelo. <laughs> We're just going to go to Angelo. We're not even going to try the last name. He was born October 5th, 1934 in Rochester, New York. His parents were originally from San Buono, Italy. They divorced when Angelo was very young and he moved to Glendale, California with his mom and sister. Glenka. Yeah. Yeah. Glaka. Glenka. Glicka. (laughs) Anyhow, he started showing an interest in sex at a very early age. And when he was just a teenager, he bragged to one of his classmates that he had already raped several girls. Oh. He even claimed that he idolized a serial rapist named, I'm guessing it's Carl. It's spelled C-A-R-Y-L. Carl? Chessman. And considered him as a hero. He stole some cars and ended up being sent to a reform school. And in 1955, he married 17-year-old Geraldine Vinal. Geraldine was pregnant when they got married, and Angelo, being the classy guy that he was... He left her a week after they were married. After she had the baby, he officially divorced her and refused to pay child support. Classy. Yeah. What a dick. Oh, it gets worse, Angelo. Later on, he married Mary Castillo. They had five children together. And trigger warning, in 1964, Angelo was believed to have raped his two-year-old daughter. I hate this. I think I hate Angelo more than Kenny. Yeah, they're both I mean, really I hate them both, just terrible. But if one has to be slightly worse, it's Angelo. It's Angelo. Mary divorced him, of course, and she claimed that he had physically and sexually abused her. Um, she even said that she tried to reconcile with him, but he handcuffed her and threatened her at gunpoint. So she decided that was the last straw. He did get married a third time to a woman named Nanette Campino, and they had two children together. Sometime during their marriage, he was arrested for stealing cars and sentenced to one year in prison. But the sentence was suspended so that he could work because he had such a large family. Eight children. Yeah, they were just like, um, never mind, you need to go work. 
Yeah. He got lots of child support. Yeah. But he doesn't want to pay it. In 1971, Nanette divorced him after stating that he abused her and also raped her daughter. Again, he is the worst. Mm -hmm. Somehow this man got married again. I don't know what is going on here, but his... He was like a stud. That's what I hear. I hear he's very good looking. Yes. I mentioned this, but I don't see it. His new wife's name is Deborah Taylor, but they never lived together. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of a weird, a weird marriage. He worked as a car upholster in 1975 and was apparently seen as an attractive man to a lot of the local women. I don't get it, but okay. During this time, he would frequently force women to perform oral sex. And he also had a teenage girlfriend whom he impregnated twice. So back to Los Angeles in 1975, Angelo taught Kenneth how to use a fake police badge to extort free sex from sex workers. The two of them also became pimps until the two girls that worked for them escaped. Yes. So um, I read the Hillside Stranglers book. Oh, okay. In two days. That's I amazing. Breeze through it. So what's it called? The Hillside Stranglers. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> was there an S at the end of Stranglers? Yes, I there was. I'm- and it was actually very well done. Um, so the two sex workers... Mm-hmm was Sabra Hannon, and she was 16 when they found her, and Rebecca Gay Spears, who was 15. So they had Sabra, and they were, you know, basically, I'm going to put in quotes, pimping her out, but they were really just raping her repeatedly at their house. And she was like their sex slave, essentially. And they told her the only way she could get out was if she brought a friend in to replace her. And so she brought in Rebecca, the 15-year-old, but then they kept both of them. Oh, jeez. They both had a thing for teenagers. Like, their girlfriends were all high schoolers. Yeah. It was a theme. And Rebecca was sent out on a call to a man named David Wood to, you know, have sex with him. And he picked up that something was wrong with her pretty much right away. And he was a well-to-do, like, I'm going to say normal guy. Okay. Noticed something was off. Kind of started talking to her and she just spilled the beans about you know, how old she was, how they were raping her and assaulting her and sodomizing her. Um, And he pretty much got her on a flight out of Los Angeles that night to Phoenix where her family was. Wow. And then Angelo and Kenny sent people after him to threaten him and all this stuff because, you know, you, you lost our whore, essentially. And he knew people, he had connections and had those people go and intimidate them and they left him alone after that. Wow. And then Sabra eventually just disappeared in the middle of the night one night after Becky got out. Well, that's horrifying. So they were not good good men at all. Oh, gosh, definitely. It's only going to get worse from here. Kenneth, I just thought this was funny because he tried again to apply for a position at the sheriff's department, but there were no positions when he applied this time. I'm like, dude, this is horrifying that he's doing all these things and wants to be a police officer mm-hmm. at the same time. In 1977, Kenneth moved in with a woman named Kelly Boyd, who he met at work. And later that year, Kelly announced that she was pregnant with Kenneth's child. She did not want to marry him, but she did continue to stay with him. So here's where we get into the Hillside Stranglers. And they are called the Hillside Stranglers because their preferred method of murdering was strangulation and then disposing their bodies around L.A., commonly on the hillsides. Their victims were ages 12 to 28 and from all walks of life. Bono's car was a retired LAPD squad car that was purchased at auction. They added flashing roof lights to simulate an actual police car. And they would cruise around L.A. in Bono's car using fake police badges to persuade women that they were real officers. So they were playing cops. They were playing cops. Mm -hmm. Kenneth couldn't become a cop. And I guess he just had to pretend to be one. Well, because who were women going to trust at night? Exactly. Exactly. They would cruise around L.A. in Buono's car using the fake police badges, and then they would drive the victims to Buono's home and torture and murder them. So in chronological order, the victims were Yolanda Washington, age 19, 
She was killed October 17, 1977. She was a beautiful young black woman working occasionally as a sex worker and working hard to provide for her young daughter. She was found naked. Her body had been cleaned before being dumped. There were faint rope marks visible around her neck, wrists, and ankles. She had been raped and strangled to death. The general consensus was that it was likely that her pimp had killed her, Um, but we'll get to that later. Judith Lynn Miller, age 15, was killed on Halloween 1977. She was occasionally known to have been working as as a sex worker in L.A. She was found naked, face up on a parkway in front of a house. There were ligature marks visible on her neck, wrists, and ankles, and she had been repeatedly raped, sodomized, and strangled to death. Lisa Caston, age 21, killed November 5th, 1977. She was a waitress trying to become a professional dancer in Hollywood, and that night she had disappeared. Coworkers said that she had been talking to two customers that had been really acting suspicious. She was found naked near a country club, kind of off a golf course. Ligature marks were visible on her neck, wrists, and ankles, and she had been brutally raped but not sodomized and strangled to death. So after the autopsies of Judith and Lisa, authorities noticed that the ligature marks were nearly identical and that it was at this point that they connected the two cases. After this, they compared those to the autopsy of Yolanda and noticed that hers were nearly identical as well. So now they're seeing the patterns, the strangulation, female bodies dumped in nearby areas, and they're kind of noticing a theme. Jane King, 28, killed November 9th, 1977. Her body was severely decomposed when it was found, um, preventing determination as to whether she had been raped or tortured, but it was pretty clear that she had been strangled to death. Dolly Sapita, age 12, um, and Sonia Johnson, age 14, killed November 13, 1977. Their bodies were found in a trash heap on November 20th. And they were decomposing, but it was still able to be determined that they had each been raped and strangled to death. Christina Weckler, age 20, killed November 20th, 1977. She was a design student in Pasadena, and she was found by hikers naked on a hillside. Ligature marks were visible on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Her breasts were bruised and blood oozed from her rectum. There were also two puncture marks on her arm where she had been injected with Windex. Ugh, God. Mm -hmm. Lauren Wagner, age 18, killed November 28, 1977. Ligature marks were visible on her neck, ankles, and wrists. And there were burn marks on her hands, which indicated torture. Kimberly Martin, age 17, killed December 13, 1977. She was a sex worker who didn't come back after being sent out by her escort service. The escort service said the call came from a payphone. They had an address of the last known location, but that night, police refused to send a car out. And the next morning, she was found at the end of Alvarado Boulevard, which is located on a hill visible from police headquarters. She was naked and showed obvious signs of torture and rape. So they know that the call came from a payphone. They go out and get fingerprints, but things weren't like what they are now where you can upload them into a database and the computer takes over. So it's all manual at that time. So the prints really just sat there. Cindy Lee Hudspeth, age 20, killed February 16th, 1978. She was a college student and found in the trunk of her own car, which had been abandoned off of a cliff, kind of in a ravine. Ligature marks were visible on her neck, ankles, and wrists, and she had been raped and tortured. She was strangled to death, put in the trunk, and then pushed off of the cliff. So the crime stopped when Bianchi moved to Washington State until he was no longer able to suppress the urges that he learned. And at this point, Karen Mandick... Uh, age 22, and Diane Wilder, age 27, were students at West- Western Washington University. 
On January 11, 1979, Bianchi was working as a security guard and lured them into a house that he was looking after. Bianchi forced Karen down the stairs in front of him, and then he strangled her. And then Diane was killed in the same manner. But since he didn't have any help from Buono at this time, he left a lot of clues behind, and the police were able to apprehend him the very next day. So both men men would sexually abuse their victims before strangling them. They experimented with other methods of killing, such as lethal injection, electric shock, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Is that what they were doing with the Windex? Yes. Lethal injection? Yes. And where, like, the burns on our hands came from was the electric electric shock. shock. It was burns. Which is... They were into the torture, too. Yes. They kind of escalated. Yeah. What is... Even more strange is that even during their string of murders, Bianchi applied for a job at the LAPD, like you had talked about, and had even taken several rides with officers. He went on ride-alongs while they were searching for the Hillside Strangler, so they didn't know that the one of the Hillside Stranglers was in their vehicle next to him. But apparently, Bono never knew that Kenneth was doing this. So shortly after he Kenneth committed the final murders, um, he revealed to Bono that he had gone on several ride-alongs and that he was currently being questioned about the Hillside Strangler case. After hearing this, he flew into a rage and then threatened to kill Bianchi. So it was pretty easy to catch him. And so following his arrest, Bianchi admitted that in 1977, he and Buono were posing as police officers, stopping a young woman named Catherine Lohr. And they intended to abduct and kill her, but they let her go after learning that she was the daughter of actor Peter Lohr. The similarities in the two cases in Washington with the Hillside Strangler cases, coupled with witness statements led to Bianchi's capture and arrest. And during his interview, he claimed to have dissociative identity disorder. The did? The did. He did the did. He did the did. (laughs) Um, So, yes, they pretty much found them because Kenny went off on his own and messed up. Which Angelo is the more logical, planned out one. And Kenny's kind of fly by the seat of his pants. Is what I gathered. Angelo's the one in... I almost said tracksuits, but I don't think they're tracksuits. Angelo's the older one. Yeah, but like, what am I picturing? Like the 70s gear, like the tracksuit zip up with the chest hair hanging out. Oh, yes. The stud. Yeah. Like what a stud looked like. Okay. (laughs) He was a a stud. (laughs) He had that gold chain. So Kenny had been questioned before by LA, um, before he went to Washington, because he had a couple addresses that were connected to the killings. Because another mistake they made was that they killed close to where they lived. And so he was just question. Do you think it was a mistake or do you think that they were doing that intentionally? I feel like like the bodies close to the police yeah. station was kind of like a big middle finger. Mm-hmm. I think some of it was purposeful because they dumped bodies where they knew because yeah. a lot of the sites were hard to find. And police had been saying, like, it's got to be someone who's lived in L.A. their whole life to know where these places are. I think they their ego got bigger and bigger, and I they just so thought that they were invisible and they could get away with all this stuff. They thought they could get away, and they yeah. could not. Um, so Kenny wasn't, like, a suspect, but he was, like, a, just being interviewed. Okay. And then when Washington happened, Washington actually called L.A. and said, you know, we don't get murders like this often. This is really weird. This guy has an address in L.A. Does he have any history? And they were like, oh, we've actually questioned him like two or three times with the Hillside Stranglers. And so the detectives in L.A. flew out to Bellingham, Washington and recognized it right away. So they brought him back. But before they brought him back, they had him examined, obviously, by first by a social worker who then called in a psychiatrist. And he was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh oh. So the psychiatrists enter the chat. Before you get into this, did you guys watch the Hillside Strangler documentary on Peacock? I didn't, but I still want to. I still want to. So it has actual footage of his. Of all of his sessions? His sessions. I would love to watch that. And his episodes. You really should. I would love to. It's fascinating. The first two psychiatrists he saw set up. It's did, which at that point was called multiple personality disorder. And Sybil was huge during this time and the three uh, faces yeah. of Eve. It was all over the media and, you know, repressed trauma. This was all a big deal. So the first two psychiatrists were like, oh, yes, 
Absolutely. This is him. Oh, yeah. He was diagnosed um, left and right. Yes, he was. And Kenny said that um, this other personality was Steve Walker and that he had killed these people. And Kenny said he had amnesia and could not remember any of it. So the detectives were in Washington who knew this case, like the back of their hands, and they were watching all of the videos that were being done and watching him being interviewed live by the psychiatrist. And they were like, this is bullshit, pretty much is what one of the detectives said. He said, I wrote on my notepad bullshit. Um, And they could tell that he was faking, but the psychiatrists weren't seeing it. So they're like, he's going to get off, basically. So they called in their own expert psychiatrist. And this expert psychiatrist is the VIP, and his name is Dr. Martin Orn. Orne. Orne. No, Orne. I'm going to say Orn. Or, not Orny. Orny. Dr. Orny. <laughs> Dr. Orny. Okay. No, I hate that so much. Like you just made your own video. <laughs> I know. I don't you like made your that own porn. Dr. Orny, I need your help. No, thank you. <laughs> all right. Dr. Orn. How did I say it? Orn. Orn. <laughs> I almost said Orny. <laughs> All right, Dr. Orn was the head of the unit for experimental psychiatry at the Institute of Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. So they flew him in. So he knows some things. He knows some things. Okay. And he started his own kind of assessment and kind of was leading Kenny on and did a bunch of fake tests on Kenny that he failed all of them. So there was one called double hallucination, single hallucination, suggested anesthesia, and source amnesia. So these are four different procedures, and he tested him on all of them. And three of those four indicate that he was faking being hypnotized, Mm -hmm. which meant there is no actual personality. No did? No did. And the fourth one was inconclusive, basically. But he, so they were being, they were putting him under hypnosis, and he was faking it because he knew that... If you don't want to be hypnotized, you can't be hypnotized. So he was faking all of it. Dr. Orn asked him to imagine, um, or first he told him, oh, hey, your lawyer is here in the room with us, when the lawyer was not in the room with them. And so Kenny acted like the lawyer was there and was talking to him and even reached out to shake his hand, which was really rare at that time. Tactile hallucinations where you feel like you can touch something is just... Very, very rare. I think I've only seen it twice in my career, honestly. That kind of raised a red flag. And then he brought in the lawyer, actually. And then Kenny acted like the hallucination had just vanished, which didn't make sense. They were like, normally people would stick with it and say, no, he's right here. And would not acknowledge that he had actually walked in the room if they were actually seeing a hallucination. Gotcha. So his hallucinations on video, like you can see him like slumped over in his chair, like he's asleep. And then just on command, he kind of wakes up and like acknowledges this non-existent person in the room, shakes his hand. It's really fascinating. And you can tell like, oh, this guy is not making everything he's faking up. it mm-hmm. yes he was questioning why he had seen him earlier he's like this doesn't make sense that you were here and they're like someone who's why hallucinating you know? doesn't try yeah. to question the logic of it yeah you don't acknowledge that yeah there's a difference and then he also told him you know just kind of dropping in a little clue that he wanted him to pick up on it's an easter egg an easter egg there you go <laughs> he said you know most people with did say they they have more than two personalities. There's three or more at least. And it's just strange that you have two. And like literally the next day, he all of a sudden had three and then he had four and then he had five and he was just like spitting these out. Oh, wow. So all of it was just very suspicious. Um, I'd say. So he um, basically said, no, this is not true. And then he went to the detectives at the same time. were like, we're going to do some research on our own and found that Steve Walker Stephen Walker was a student that Kenny had previously tried to steal his identity to practice psychology. He used his alter ego's name was actually someone that he knew. Oh boy. And they were like, that's suspicious. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and they found several books on psychology in his home. He had tried to fake being his own psychologist and had fake degrees and all of this stuff. So they were like, he knows a little bit. He knows how to fake hypnosis and how to fake this. Got it. So they keep confronting him with all of this. Main reason why he's doing this is because California didn't have the death penalty um, for insanity, please. But Washington, if he pled guilty in Washington, he would get the chair, basically. And he was trying to avoid that. So eventually they keep confronting him on this and he cracks and he admits that 
yes, he... It was a lie. ...does not have personalities. And they also knew about his being a compulsive liar from childhood, like you said. <laughs> Kenny. He was diagnosed, though, with antisocial personality disorder. And passive-aggressive. <laughs> and sexual sadism, <laughs> which I'm sure we're all shocked by these. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> so, Kenny agreed to testify against Angelo to reduce his sentence. So, he did take a plea. And they told him, if you testify against Angelo, we'll bring you back to California. We'll still try you for all of these, but you will get a life sentence, basically, and not death. And they would not send him to the Washington prisons, which were way worse, they said, than the L.A. prisons. Specifically, I think it was Walla Walla. Oh, yeah, Walla Walla. Which is very infamous for being terrible. (laughs) The prison? The prison. Oh, I was like, There's the a prison. town is nice. There's a prison in Walla Walla, apparently. Wow. So he did not want to go there, and he did not want the chair, so he agreed to testify against Angelo. I can't imagine it's worse than Los Angeles, but yeah, what do like, I know? What's the Skid Row? No, the, the QQ. There's a prison in California. Like one of the worst prisons in America. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I know where he went, but I don't know. What I don't know, man. Maybe Walla Walla is up there. So they fly him back to um, California to start the trial. So they don't have to do a trial on Kenny. He's already pled guilty and done his plea deal. So this is Angelo's trial. So Angelo's case was largely based upon Kenny's testimony. So the prosecution kind of sucked at first. Um, It was the district attorney, John Vandekamp and Roger Kelly. And they worked against the police and the investigators for the first year of just the whole preliminary trial. And they were working against them. They would ruin witnesses. Like one detective went and talked to this witness who had witnessed seeing them before they killed someone. And she was very, very anxious. And the detective met with her a hundred times trying to convince her to go to trial. And he brought Roger Kelly, the prosecution, with him once. And he blew up at her and like started screaming at her. And then she was even more anxious. I bet. So the detectives and the investigators all said that they were just working against them, which is weird because they're the prosecution. But there were some political things going on here. The DA, John Vandekamp, was wanting to run for governor. And Roger Kelly was wanting to become the attorney general when that happened. And they did not want to lose a case because of this. Especially not a high-profile case. Not a high-profile case. And Kenny was being very uncooperative. He contradicted himself frequently. They did not think he was a stable witness. And like they said, the whole case was based off his testimony. So they thought they would lose it. So they actually filed to release the case, basically. And the judge was like, no. So they filed basically for Angela to be released. No charges whatsoever. They filed for dismissal. For a dismissal. And the judge was Ronald M. George. And he took a week to think about it. And most judges side with the prosecution because it's the attorney general who's doing this and the DA. And he took a week and came back and had a, I forget how long it said it took him to read out his announcement. It was like over an hour that he read out his announcement. And he was basically like, absolutely not. We're not letting this guy go free. Good for him. There will be a trial. And if I have to reassign, I will reassign. And that's what happened. Got so it. they reassigned the case to the another attorney general's office, which was George Duke Mission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they took on the case. This In is case all- you were wondering what the, the prison that you were thinking about. Yes. San Quentin. San Quentin. But number one worst prison is Pelican Bay. Oh. Number two is San Quentin. So this is why this became the longest and most expensive trial in the history of the California legal system at that time. It lasted from November 1981 until November 1983, just over two years. All right, so Kenny got up to testify on the first day and was a terrible witness and contradicted himself constantly to the point that the judge didn't tell Kenny, but he told the defense attorneys and the prosecution that didn't we tell him he'd have to go back to Walla Walla if he wasn't being a good enough witness? And the next day he cooperated and spent five months on the stand. Wow. It's a long time Turned to be on the right stand. Right around. Yeah. That is a long time. Very long time. They had a ton of witnesses, over 200 witnesses. Holy smokes. Um, they had everyone from their childhood. They brought back the two uh, sex workers they had kidnapped. They came and testified. They had witnesses. I mean, they just had a lot. All right, so they listed 14 revelations by Kenny to the police that turned out to be accurate. So Kenny had told the police back in Bellingham, Washington, 
things about the murders and went through each and every murder. And there was 14 things he said that was not known by anybody else but the police. And so, like, the girl who was injected with Windex had two injection sites. But he said there's a third one on her neck. And there was a third one on her neck that they didn't even notice until they went back to examine her body. Oh, wow. So just things that nobody would know that made them believe that this was actually both of them. Then we're going to bring in Veronica Compton. This is while Kenny is in jail, while the trial is ongoing. Okay. So he starts a relationship with a woman named Veronica Compton, who is an actress and playwriter, and she was obsessed with serial killers. So she started writing to him and was like, hey, here's my screenplay about a female serial killer. Can you read it over and let me know how it is? Ew. (laughs) So over their correspondence, she starts to fall in love with him. He starts to manipulate her. He told her... Basically, that she needed to take the heat off of him and make it look like the killer was still out there and that it wasn't him. So he told her to fly out to Washington because the murders in Washington is what started this whole situation and got him arrested. Um, And he said to make it look like the Hillside Strangler was still on the loose. So he even gave her some of his semen so she (laughs) could plant it to make it look like it was a rape and a murder. (laughs) And I... Both of them are gross. Had this question... Wouldn't this connect back to him? But like Boyson said, DNA at the time was not where it is now. And so semen could be analyzed to show what blood type the man had. And that was pretty much it. Okay. And that's not a big enough risk to tie back to him. And so he wanted the blood type to match the previous victims. So that's why it had to be his semen. That's he- gross. I don't yeah. want to know how the exchange went. I, I know how it happened. Do you want to know? I- it was a conjugal visit. No. So he was allowed lots of visits, but he was not allowed to touch or anything. He got a glove from, like, the nurse and ejaculated into one of the fingers, stuck bubble gum in it, tied it around, and then snuck it into a book with a little string and told her to pull the string out of the book, like the binding. And she did. And there was a little semen finger. (laughs) Semen finger. Man. clever. I mean, he's clever and crafty. Not the semen finger. So she did this. She did exactly what she told him to, but she failed. She tried to strangle the woman. She lured her to a motel, and the woman fought back and escaped. And it did not, like I said, work. So Veronica was caught pretty much right away because they had all of this stuff tying her to Kenny. It was very easy to see she was visiting him and writing him letters. (laughs) And she took the semen finger. And calling him. (laughs) And so she was imprisoned. <laughs> Although, so she was in prison. She was arrested. She was sent for life sentence with possibility of parole. Prosecution did not want to call her because she's crazy. Uh-huh. Yep. But the defense decided to call her. And she told the jury all of these fake stories about trying to free Kenny and how their romance was one for the ages. But then... They also asked her, weren't you also corresponding with another serial killer? Oh, geez. And she was. And their letter showed that she wanted to buy a mortuary with him so they could practice necrophilia. Oh, Um, no. So she is a winner and a totally trustworthy witness. She's the worst. She is. She's really sick. Um, Other things the prosecution had to tie them to the crimes. There was two fibers from Angelo's upholstery workshop in his home that were found on two of the victims. They matched. There was an imprint of a fake police badge on his wallet. And this is probably one of the few times he messed up. They go to arrest him. They ask him for his wallet. He goes, I don't have a wallet. I never carry a wallet. I've never had a wallet in my life. My tracksuit doesn't have pockets. <laughs> he pulled out cash and he said, I just put it in my pockets. No, he just puts it in his And bra. he was sitting at his desk in his office and they opened up the desk drawer and there's his wallet just <laughs> sitting right there. Weird. Oops. And the police badge was gone, but you could clearly see the imprint of the police badge. <laughs> From the years it had been there. It had been there for so long. <laughs> kind of like the driver's license. Oh like, you can gosh. see it. And they were like, why would he just leave his wallet laying here? And then he kept rabbits in his house. And there was hairs from the rabbits that were found on one of the victims. So finally, the defense rests after two years. And on October 31st, the jury came back with a guilty verdict for the murder of Lauren Wagner. November 3rd, they came back with a not guilty verdict for the first victim, Yolanda Washington, because one of the main things that tied her to him was one of her pimps had seen her get in a car and drive off, and they he was not a very reliable witness because he had a psychiatric history. November 5th, they returned a guilty verdict for the murder of Judy Miller. 
November 7th, guilty verdict for Dolores Cepeda, Sonia Johnson. At this point, you know, Angelo's pissed, so he fires his attorneys and tells the judge, I'm not talking to them anymore. Like, okay. dude, you, you've already been found guilty for several yeah. murders at this point. Right. It doesn't matter if you're talking to them. <laughs> the trial is over. <laughs> I mean, you can throw a fit if you want to. But I just want you to know I'm not talking to them anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm playing nice. I'm done. I'm firing them even though they have rested and given their closing <laughs> arguments. <laughs> On November 9th, uh, the jury returned with guilty verdicts for the murder of Christina Weckler, Lisa Keston, and Jane King. The jury also tells the judge that they are deadlocked on the last murder tra- on the last murder charge of Cindy Hudspeth. The judge basically told them, "Doesn't matter. Figure it out." Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and they were sequestered during this time, which the defense fought against because they're like, they don't need to be sequestered, and they're like, if. Even, like, a reporter gets to them, because reporters were all trying to get to them. They're like, if even one reporter gets to them or one friend tells them how they should vote, then it's a mistrial. And yeah. we're not risking it. Sure. After two years and all the money they spent. So on November 14th, jury came back and they found a guilty verdict for Cindy Husbeth. Wow. So they took 19 days total to deliberate all of the murder charges. Um, at that point, they are still sequestered and the judge tells them... All right, now we need to decide if this is going to be a life sentence or a death penalty. And although they took 19 days to decide if he was guilty, they took one hour and came back with a life sentence. Okay, that one was easier to figure out. I think um, what a lot of people speculated was that they had already been with this trial for two years and sequestered for 28 days, and they were like, no more. Yeah. Like, let's just do life sentence. Okay. Um, a lot of people were upset about this, though. The judge himself said, quote, I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case were it within my power to do so. Ironically, although these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims, the defendants have escaped any form of capital punishment. Hmm. It's basically the judge was getting a lot of calls and letters saying, like, override this. And he's like, I can't. Dude, I can't. So he brought them actually to trial together on January 9th, 1984, when the final reading was life imprisonment for them and had them stand together. And this was the first time that they had ever really talked or even made eye contact or been close to each other since this started. Um, The only time that Angelo acknowledged Kenny when he was in trial testifying, testifying was he admitted that he had sex with some girl, I don't remember who, on Angelo's bed, which was off limits. And they said Angelo flipped him off in court. <laughs> That's the only reaction That's he it. ever gave oh to Kenny. My God. So they asked Kenny, you know, why did you do this? And he said, quote, I thought about this a lot. Was this a thing to get the thrill of killing and the sex was just an extra bonus? Or was the sex the main thing and the killing was just a necessity afterwards? I'm not sure. It could be either one of those. It could be a variation of both of those. So after all of that, the judge was still pissed at Kenny. So he sent him to Washington Walla. State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah. <laughs> and he is currently still there. He, he was, is still alive. He is still alive. He was denied parole on August 18th, 2010, and will be eligible again to apply for parole in 2025. He... Ended up suing in 1992, Catherine Uronwood, for $8.5 million because she put his face on a trading card and he said his face was trademarked. He lost. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you trademark your own face? No. And so the judge dismissed this case saying, if you really trademarked your face, maybe okay. you should have thought about that when you were killing women <laughs> and you wouldn't have to hide from the police. <laughs> He, he was in like your face is picture. That's what they're saying. They're like your face is everywhere. It's not oh trademarked. Oh my gosh! Angelo, sit down. <laughs> Kenny, sit down. What are you gonna do with eight point five million dollars when you're on a life sentence? It's a lot of commissary. That's true. Angelo died of a heart attack on September twenty first, two thousand and two, at Calipatria State Prison in California. He was cremated, and the judge, who is the ultimate VIP, who basically put this trial and got the convictions became a california supreme court judge oh good for him because the um prosecutor who became governor did become governor and nominated him as a supreme court judge well i mean so because of him he got them convicted 
he, I guess in some states it was becoming a thing where if a patient or if a witness was hypnotized, they could not like their witness meant nothing and you could not call them to trial at all or at just all. that testimony. Oh, okay. And so it was becoming a thing, but in California, it wasn't a thing yet. You could still be hypnotized and be called as a witness. But the judge was like, I foresee this is going to happen in California. So he would not allow anyone who had been hypnotized to be part of the trial. And some of the witnesses had been hypnotized, but Kenny, they could prove he was not actually hypnotized, which is why his witness was allowed. And they said, a couple years later, it did come to California where if you were hypnotized, you couldn't be allowed to testify. And they're like, if that had happened and these hypnotized people had testified, then it would have been a mistrial and they would have had to try them all again. When you say that, do you mean hypnotized just ever? Like hypnotized to get a testimony okay. out of them. So they would, the police would have some of them come in and they'd be like, I, I can't remember what I saw. It was really dark. And they would have them hypnotized and give their testimony. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. And so he foresaw that that was going to be thrown out in California, even though it was still yeah. legal. And because he did, they didn't have to go through a retrial. Oh, that was smart. Mm-hmm. He's a VIP, Just like I'm saying. Thinking ahead. That is the story of the Hillside Stranglers. It's a f- sad, fascinating story. And you know what? It's one that I don't think... I don't want to say gets enough recognition because that's not the right word, Mm -hmm. but you don't seem to hear about it as much as you do, say, Dahmer or Bundy or, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. It just is, it makes you wonder, I don't know why. I think part of that might be, and it's sad, but some of their victims, not all, were sex workers. Yeah. And I think- um, a lot of times, and they even talked about this, that the media broadcasted them as less than sex worker yeah. killers. And they're like, not every woman was a sex worker. And that's right. a disgrace to their families and to their memories. So that's part of the documentary is the first few first couple were sex workers, or at least had a history of sex work. Mm-hmm. And there was um, a lady, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, you're gonna have to watch the documentary on Peacock. But she was trying to come to their, their aid and their defense and like, no, these are actually people too. Like you need to to be concerned and, and, and help them. And the one that went missing the night before, she was the one that called the police and tried to be like, this lady's missing. I know exactly where she probably is. You need to go help her. It's this guy that she's in trouble. But the police are like, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was, of course, found dead the next day. And it's just, man, that was a, a crummy time in in social history and police history. Um, right. It's it's just very sad. And a lot of the detectives who worked the case, like said, this ruined like their careers during that time or their lives during that time, like their personal lives, and just they became obsessed with finding these men. Because they knew it was two men pretty early on, and a lot of them became close with the family members and, like, the parents and are still close with them, like, to this day because they just became so invested in it. Yeah. Well, it was really sad. Very sad all around from the beginning to the end. Um, but anyways, thanks so much guys for tuning in this week to our true crime episode on the Hillside Stranglers. You can always find us at the with our socials linked from there or send us an email at the at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. We will catch you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.